the Zodiac Killer. It only takes three murders over the course of more than 30 days to be classified as a serial killer, and thus there have been hundreds and hundreds of individuals considered to be serial killers in the last century or so. Most of these people are largely unknown to the wide world, terrorizing local communities for a while before likely being caught. There are a handful of killers, however, that make a unique name for themselves, either through the sheer brutality of their actions, the number of their victims, or the fact that they were never identified. The Zodiac Killer falls into this last category, managing to kill at least five people in Northern California around the late 60s without ever being identified. The Zodiac Killer has been a subject of pop culture dating back to the early 70s when he was still active, but let's just take a short look at the facts. We'll be bouncing around the timeline a little bit, but let's begin at the widely accepted point of confirmed kills. In December of 1968, two teenagers, David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, are taking a drive outside of Benicia, California on their first official date. They had promised Betty Lou's parents they'd be home by 11pm, but around 10.15, David parked his vehicle at a makeout spot on Lake Herman Road. Shortly after 11, their two bodies were discovered by a woman that lived nearby. David was found next to the vehicle with a bullet wound in his head, and Betty Lou was found further away, apparently in an attempt to flee with five bullet wounds in her back. The car itself also had some bullet holes, possibly caused by the killer to force the two to exit the vehicle. Police were perplexed by the motive of the killings, and had no suspect whatsoever. On the 4th of July, 1969, seven months later, 22-year-old Darlene Farron picked up her friend, 19-year-old Michael Majot, and drove into the Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, four miles from where David and Betty Lou were murdered. They parked the car in a parking lot shortly before midnight and sat inside of it together. Sometime later, a second car drove up beside them, but almost immediately drove away again. Ten minutes later, the same car returned, but parked behind them instead. A man exited the vehicle, approached Michael on the passenger side, pointed a flashlight into both Michael and Darlene's eyes, and then fired a pistol multiple times. Five bullets were fired, with both Darlene and Michael being shot, and some bullets passing through Michael into Darlene. The man then walked away from the car, but after hearing Michael moaning, came back and shot each of them twice more before driving off. Around 40 minutes later, the Vallejo Police Department received a phone call from a man who said that he wanted to report a murder. He told the police the location of Darlene's car, and said that they were both shot with a 9mm Luger. The man also claimed to have killed those kids last year. Officers had already found the victims, however, as they had been investigating reports of gunfire being heard. Both of the victims were taken to the hospital, where Darlene was pronounced dead. Despite his numerous injuries, however, including shots to the face, neck, and chest, Michael survived and described the attacker as 26 to 30 years old, around 200 pounds or more, 5 foot 8 inches, white male with short light brown curly hair. The police didn't have much to go on, and the trail went cold again. On August 1st of 1969, however, 
three separate newspapers, the Vallejo Times-Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner, each received a nearly identical letter from someone claiming to be the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman, and the girl on the 4th of July. To prove this, the individual provided some info about the crimes known only to themselves and the police, such as the brand of the ammunition used, and the position of the bodies. Each of the letters finish with one-third of a cipher created by the killer, a secret message written in code. The killer demands each newspaper print the cipher on their front page, and if they do not, the killer will go on a killing rampage the entire weekend, cruising around until they've killed more than a dozen people. In one of the letters, the killer specifically says that the cipher contains his identity. One of the newspapers, the San Francisco Examiner, published the cipher in their August 2nd edition, on the fourth page, along with a quote from the Vallejo police chief saying that they're not satisfied that the letter was written by the murderer, asking them to send a second letter with more facts. The threatened murders did not occur that weekend, however, and soon all three parts of the cipher were published. On August 4th, the examiner received another letter, apparently from the killer, in which they opened by writing, This is the Zodiac speaking. This is the first time the Zodiac name is used. The Zodiac killer is happy to provide more details to confirm his identity, and asks if the police are having a good time with his cipher. He reconfirms that if they solve it, they will have him. He goes on to provide more details about the two murder scenes, including information not publicly released at all. It didn't take long for the cipher to be cracked, however. On August 8th, a California schoolteacher, Donald Hardin, and his wife, Betty, cracked the 408-symbol cryptogram. The message contains numerous misspelled words, but reads, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest, because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and those I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. The final 18 letters of the cipher, seemingly gibberish, remain unexplained. It seems that the Zodiac Killer lied, though, as despite solving the cipher, the police were no closer to confirming his identity. The killer struck again on September 27, 1969, at Lake Berryessa in Napa County. Two college students, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, were picnicking on the shore of the lake when they were approached by a man holding a pistol and wearing a black executioner's type hood with sunglasses over the eye holes and something like a bib on his chest with a white cross circle symbol on it. The man claimed to be an escaped convict who had killed a guard and stolen a car. He needed their car and some money to go to Mexico. Using pre-cut lengths of plastic clothesline, he told Cecilia to tie up Brian, and then he tied her up himself. While tied up, the man pulled out a knife and stabbed them both repeatedly. Brian six times and Cecilia ten times. 
He then walked over to the couple's vehicle and using a felt tip pen wrote on the car door Vallejo 122068 7469 September 27th 69630 by knife. He also drew the same cross circle symbol. At 7.40 p.m., the Napa County Sheriff's Department received a phone call from a man wishing to report a murder, and then correcting himself to say a double murder. He directs the police to the location, and finishes by saying that he was the one who did it. The police track the call to a payphone at a car wash only a few blocks away from the sheriff's office, but 27 miles away from the crime scene. They managed to grab a palm print off of the phone, but were never able to match it to anyone. Police had already arrived at the crime scene and found both of the victims alive. Unfortunately, on the way to the hospital, Cecilia lapsed into a coma and died two days later. Brian survived the encounter, however, now the second of the Zodiac's victims to do so. A pattern of killing is beginning to form at this point, as the Zodiac seems to be preying on young, isolated couples. Just as the police begin to latch onto this pattern, however, the Zodiac breaks it. Two weeks after the Lake Berryessa attack, on October 11th, a 28-year-old cab driver in San Francisco named Paul Stein picked up a fare with the destination in the upscale Presidio Heights neighborhood. For some reason, Paul drove one block past the destination recorded on his sheet, where his passenger shot him in the right side of the head. The killer then proceeded to take Paul's wallet and car keys, and tore away a section of Paul's blood-stained shirt. Three teenagers witnessed the crime, and watched the killer wipe down parts of the interior and exterior of the cab. The man walked away from the scene, and the teenagers called the police. Due to some mix-up in communication, however, the dispatcher informed patrolling officers to be on the lookout for a black male adult instead of a white male. Two officers responding to the call passed by a white man a couple blocks from the crime scene, but ignored him due to the misinformation. Based on the description of the man, this was likely the Zodiac. The murder of Paul Stein was initially believed to be the result of a robbery that had escalated, but two days later, on October 13th, the San Francisco Chronicle received another Zodiac letter. Once again, the Zodiac confirms that he is the one responsible for the murder, and taunts the San Francisco police by saying that they could have caught him if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles. He finishes the letter by writing that school children make nice targets, and he'll wipe out a school bus some morning by shooting out the front tire and picking off the kitties as they come bouncing out. The letter was accompanied by a piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt. The San Francisco Police Department was now involved in the case, assigning detectives Bill Armstrong and Dave Toskey to investigate the Zodiac. On October 22nd, someone called up the Oakland Police Department claiming to be the Zodiac Killer, and demanded that a prominent lawyer, either F. Lee Bailey or Melvin Belli, appeared on a local television show AM San Francisco. Hours later, Belli appeared on the show, as Bailey was unavailable. A man repeatedly called into the show, claiming to be the Zodiac, and going by the name of Sam. 
The man claimed that he suffered from headaches ever since he killed a kid. At one point, the man threatened that he was going to kill those kids. Belli persuaded the man to meet him in person, but a media circus developed around the meeting spot, and the man did not make an appearance. The two police dispatchers who had spoken to the Zodiac Killer on the phone, as well as Brian Hartnell, who had spoken to him at Lake Berryessa, all said that the man called Sam did not have the same voice as the Zodiac. It's believed that a mental patient was responsible for the hoax call. On November 8th, the Chronicle received another letter from the Zodiac with another piece of Paul Stein's shirt. In the letter, the Zodiac writes that there is bad news coming, but you won't get that news for a while yet. He includes another cipher, this one 340 characters in length, and asks the paper to put it on their front page. The letter also contains an implication that the Zodiac has taken seven lives, although at this point, the police are only aware of five for sure. Although the first cipher sent by the Zodiac was solved very quickly, this second cipher has yet to ever be conclusively solved, not for lack of trying. Perhaps this cipher is just nonsense, or perhaps the Zodiac truly managed to create an incredibly complex cryptogram. But either way, people have been attempting to solve it for decades, with no definitive success. The following day, the Zodiac sent yet another letter to the Chronicle, this one seven pages long. The Zodiac says that from now on, he is not going to announce any of his murders to anyone, but instead make them look like routine robberies, killings of anger, and a few fake accidents. He claims that the police will never catch him, because he is too clever for them. He continues to taunt the police with information about how he wears a disguise when he kills, which is what these sketches of him have been depicting, and that he wears airplane cement on his fingertips to guard his prints. He wiped down the cab to leave fake clues for the police to keep them running all over town, because he enjoys that. He says that after he left the cab, he was stopped by two cops, who asked him if he saw anything suspicious, and he told them there was a man running by waving a gun, so they drove off. He also mentions that if the cops think he's going to take out a school bus the way he stated, they deserve to have holes in their heads. He finishes the letter by describing and drawing instructions for creating an improvised explosive device. He mentions how he'll leave one of these on a roadside in order to blow up a bus. The letter seems to refute the two patrolling officers' story of them passing by the Zodiac on their way to the crime scene at the cab. The officers have consistently denied ever speaking with the man while passing him by, so the truth remains unknown. On December 20th, one year after the first confirmed murders of the Zodiac, Melvin Belli received a letter from the Zodiac containing yet another piece of Paul Stein's shirt. The Zodiac asks Belli to help him, as he is finding it extremely difficult to contain the thing inside of him. He is afraid he will lose control and take his ninth and possibly tenth victim. The death of Paul Stein would be the last confirmed attack by the Zodiac Killer, although there is speculation on events that occurred before 1968 and after 1969. In March of 1970, 22-year-old Kathleen Johns was traveling north across California 
to visit her mother. She was seven months pregnant at the time, and was accompanied by her infant daughter. As she traveled on the highway near Modesto, another vehicle pulled alongside her, and the driver indicated she should pull over. She did so, and the driver informed her that one of her back wheels was loose. After claiming to have fixed the problem, Kathleen drove off again, but soon the entire wheel came off. The same man pulled behind her again and offered to give her a ride to a gas station, which she accepted. During the ride, they passed by several service stations, but the man did not stop. The man apparently threatened both her and her daughter, and so when the driver stopped at an intersection, Kathleen grabbed her child and jumped out of the car, running into a nearby field. She hid there in the dark while the man searched for her, but eventually he drove off. She eventually got helped by another driver and went to a police station to report the scenario. Most significantly, she pointed to the composite sketch of the Zodiac Killer as being the man, without realizing who the sketch was of, and her car was later found gutted by fire. Months later, the Chronicle would receive a letter from the Zodiac, in which he mentions giving an interesting ride to a woman and her baby, but without practically any other details. It's possible that the Zodiac was simply trying to take credit for someone else's crime, something he would seemingly do multiple times. On April 20th, 1970, another letter was received in which the Zodiac includes a 13-letter cipher that supposedly contains his name, but has also never been solved. He also implies that he has now taken 10 victims. Letters would continue to be received throughout 1970 by the Chronicle, continually taunting the police about a rising body count On October 27, 1970, Paul Avery, a reporter working for the Chronicle who had been covering the Zodiac case, received a Halloween card signed by the Zodiac with the words, Peekaboo, you are doomed. Avery began carrying a revolver, but he was never attacked by the Zodiac. A number of other murders would be attributed by some to the Zodiac killer including Sherry Jo Bates at Riverside City College in 1966, Robert Domingos and Linda Edwards near Gaviota in 1963, and Donna Lass in Nevada in 1970. The Zodiac Killer would continue to write letters, eventually claiming to have killed 37 people in his final letter in 1974. Other letters would be received afterwards, but all are believed to be hoaxes. In the end, the Zodiac Killer seemingly faded away, with the police none the wiser to his true identity, and multiple ciphers still left unsolved. Like any unidentified serial killer, however, there are plenty of suspects, ranging from the Unabomber to Ted Cruz. The San Francisco Police Department ended up investigating 2,500 suspects over the years, with none of them being conclusively confirmed. Generally, the principal suspect discussed in the Zodiac case is a man named Arthur Lee Allen. Allen's position as a popular suspect is largely due to the efforts of Robert Graysmith, a former cartoonist who worked at the San Francisco Chronicle during the time of the Zodiac case. He became obsessed with the case, eventually writing two books about the killer, which were later adapted to a Hollywood film in 2007. 
There was a lot of circumstantial evidence that connected Allen to the Zodiac, which led to the police extensively investigating him, but no definitive evidence was ever discovered. Anytime you look at the events of an unidentified serial killer, you know there's a fascinating, albeit grim, story involved. There's a lot of mystery wrapped up in the Zodiac attacks, from the ciphers, the intelligence of the killer, to his body count, and of course, his identity. While it's unlikely we'll ever actually learn who the Zodiac killer was, he certainly left his mark on history. 